Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Not the greatest day for Steve Bannon. I, I assume that you know by now that the January 6th committee voted unanimously to find Bannon in contempt and to refer uh, criminal contempt charges to the Department of Justice. Now, I mean, it's 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 going to be a, a messy, long, drawn out process, but clearly uh, shots were fired yesterday. And, and here is Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who uh, is just I mean, I'm sorry, Liz Cheney is just this lady is not for turning. She is not backing down. And here's her description of Steve Bannon's central role in the insurrection on January 6th. The day before this all occurred, on January 5th, Mr. Bannon publicly professed knowledge that, quote, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow, end quote. He forecast that the day would be, quote, extraordinarily different than what most Americans expected. He said to his listeners and his viewers, quote, So many people said, if I was in a revolution, I would be in Washington. Well, he said, this is your time in history. Based on the committee's investigation, it appears that Mr. Bannon had substantial advanced knowledge of the plans for January 6th and likely had an important role in formulating those plans. Mm -hmm. Mr. Bannon was in the war room at the Willard on January 6th. He also appears to have detailed knowledge regarding the president's efforts to sell millions of Americans the fraud that the election was stolen. And then she had this little juicy comment about uh, the former guy's uh, lawsuit to try to block uh, any of the testimony and the turning over of documents. This is what she had to say. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. Mm. And this committee will get to the bottom of that. Personally involved. Well, to talk about all of this as well as just whatever else is happening. Uh, We are joined by Charlie Warzel, who uh, writes the newsletter Galaxy Brain, previously worked as a writer at large for the New York Times opinion section, co-author of the forthcoming book Out of out of office, the big problem and bigger promise of working from home. Charlie, thanks for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Charlie on Charlie Action. And of course, you you spent a lot of time uh, deep in the swamps of right-wing media before you went to the Times, and, and also when you were at the Times. I mean, you spent a lot of time reading and hanging out with these people, didn't you? Yeah, uh, full, full immersion, basically, uh, from, uh, I would say, the middle of the 2016 election up until probably when I probably around 2020, you know, around the end of the election. So basically the entire uh, Trump presidency I spent sort of enmeshed in that in that world to some degree. And it was uh, it was taxing. (laughs) It it was taxing. So did, did, did that fry your brain? I mean, really, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time doing it. And every once in a while, I have to take a deep breath and go, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just spending too much time in crazy town. It's 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 bending me. I mean, you but you did it all the time. Yeah. So it, a, a really interesting thing happens where you're able to sort of separate yourself. And, you know, it, it's it's not that you're sort of being brainwashed necessarily but but you know i one thing that i i did is i constructed like a separate twitter account to follow you know just to really dive into that universe and 
what would happen over time is I, is I actually, you know, their talking points, their sort of rebuttals to, you know, any mainstream news, whatever it is, would just sort of be lodged in my brain. Like my brain would come up with their talking points either, you know, ahead of time. And that's, that's yeah. useful as a, as a, you know, as a, as a journalist or a writer to sort to of know anticipate. what they're thinking. Yeah. But, but it also kind of, you know, I'd just be having political conversations with friends or family and I wouldn't say these things out loud, but you, <laughs> they'd be in my brain. And there's a way in which you almost sort of wish that, you know, it, it's it's very difficult to occupy those two spaces and try to actually get distance between you know what you what you believe and and sort of you know the reality that's being constructed over by this other side. Well, also you know the the danger is spending too much time online, you get a distorted view of reality. And right before we started this, I was telling you, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I was at a public event. I think it was down in Texas, and you know speaking to a group of of, of folks and. I was actually startled that they were so reasonable, logical, and, and normal. And then I realized, no, it was it was the fact that I'd spent so much time online that I'd gotten this view that 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 everybody was a little bit crazy or hair on fire. And it was it it was it was healthy to to come up for air and see that hey, the world is still going on. Not everybody is completely batshit crazy, but also to the extent to which if you do spend time in that world, you know you are going to start to think there's two moons in the sky. You know, there's in my reporting, I, I traveled around quite a bit and there was one time also in Texas, in Austin, I was covering, uh, this trial of Alex Jones, this, um, family, oh, yeah. family trial that he had. And it was a kind of a window into who he was as a person. But at the same time, there were, there was a, a gathering of sort of, uh, MAGA folks with a bunch of online, you know, uh, Trump sort of ringleaders, uh, at this hotel in Austin. And I went, uh, and I just remember at the event, everyone just being super personable, super nice. Just, it, it just felt like a normal, you know, just, I don't know, like hanging out at a bar. Right. And it was really disorienting to me because, you know, I'd talked to them and it seemed in one sense that like they were, they weren't having, like, they didn't feel as, under threat, under attack. Like if, if, you know, if, if they truly believed everything that they were saying, you know, all the time online, you would, you would think that these people would be, you know, in, in their bunkers, always ready to go to war, et cetera. And, you know, it's sort of highlighted to the degree that, you know, especially for some of these like online grifter folks who are, you know, the, the pundits that, that it really is a bit of a game, right? They're not as, ideologically, you know, under attack as, as they say they are, but, but also you know, that mixed with this feeling of, wow, these, these people are, you know, can be charming. They can sort of, you know, yeah. try to, uh, you know, play to your ego. It, it, I really would have to, you know, step outside of those things, you know, ground myself and, and, you know, sort of pin myself to reality as it were. Okay. So since we're talking about this, it, so what do these folks think about a guy like Alex Jones and a guy like Alex Jones who goes on the air and alleging that uh, the Sandy Hook shooting was, I don't know, was, was staged or that it was, you know, somehow a false flag event. I mean, how, how, what do they think about that when they hear that? So this this particular group, I would say, fell into and, and a lot of them, you know, revealed to me like, oh, yeah, I spend a lot of time on on 4chan and places like that. They're sort of the the crew that they embrace Alex Jones with, with a wink and a nod, right? They're, okay. They kind of look at it as like, oh, it's such great entertainment, right? But the, the people that I, that I talk to 
also said that over time, you know, you watch Alex Jones during the middle of the workday because you're bored and you go out of the, you know, the, the webcast and you're like, oh, let's, let's see him rant about something. That'll be fun. And then as many of them said, and they also said this about, about 4chan and some of the online message boards and, and, and Twitter too, that you go there sort of as an ironic joke or to be entertained because huh. you have a, you know, this kind of weird online trolley, you know, contrarian bent or whatever, or, uh, you know, you like to kind of, you like to see chaos and then slowly over time, there is this indoctrination. And, you know, they, some of them even, even said that, like one guy I talked to told me about, he'd been on 4chan for about at this party, he told me, you know, probably since 2010 or 2012, sorry. And he, he said that I don't even like some of the, some of the beliefs that, that I have now, but I can't not see them in my head. You know, I can't, I can't not get away from them because I've just been consuming so much of it. Uh, and, and the reason why they didn't like it is because they had felt that those beliefs ostracized them from society. Uh, you know, like justify so they couldn't talk to their, this, this guy said, I can't talk to my wife, right. About a lot of the okay. things that I think. And it was just, it was such a interesting and, and kind of, you know, deeply sad moment. And so, you know, they find community here. And I think that huh. that's one thing that I learned in a lot of this, this coverage is when you're observing it from afar and, and you see this sort of alternate reality, it's hard sometimes for people to realize that there is a great sense of community. There. Community, like right. It's belonging. Right. If you go to a Trump rally, it feels like a sports tailgate to some degree, obviously a very dystopian one, but, but the sense of community to them doesn't feel toxic. It doesn't feel, it feels good. It feels like, like, home it feels comfortable and and those people i think are are genuinely there for each other and it's you know it's based around this really dangerous set of ideas and 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 you know divorce from reality but i think we always underestimate the sense to which that community is really load bearing to this entire movement so again do they believe this do they pretend to believe it do they are they just entertained by it or or is that kind of an irrelevant question because it's all sort of this this cloud that that allows them to be part of the community i think it i think it's kind of irrelevant in the sense and and this is actually mm -hmm. gets to a little bit of you know since you mentioned the top yeah. with, with the january 6th when i look at that at that footage if i you know when i sort of roll through that entire day uh through looking at social media all the video etc all the reconstructions i sort of see the entire movement in that mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is you do have this core of 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 true believers right you have then you know this group of sort of um they may not even be true believers but they want to fight there's a group of people who want to fight they want conflict in whatever way because you know they are they are angry they like to fight whatever it is they feel good wearing the tactical gear etc cetera, etc cetera. and then i think you have this group of people who are sort of there for the you know that that communal sense and that sort of you know again like liken it almost to like a sports tailgate or you know just that sort of like fan frenzy it, it's a it's a cultural thing it, it's part of their <laughs> cultural identity and i don't know that they are necessarily I don't even know if anything really matters beyond dressing up, wearing the, huh. clo the clothing, you know, really being together and making that that sort of Trumpism a real a real part of, 
of, of your identity. I think there's obviously some yeah. political affiliation there, but I don't know that, you know, I don't know how strong the, this is the, good. the yeah. beliefs are. And then okay. I, I think all those things act together, right? And what you saw on January 6th is all of that acting together. Like, I, I believe that there are people, you know, I've spoken to lots of, of people who were there and were sort of taken aback by what happened and they left, or there were some people who were on the outskirts and interpreted what was going on quite differently. I've spoken to people uh, who, you know, we did an investigation in the New York Times, all the cell phone data, and I ended up yeah. you know, calling people. And there's a lot of those conversations we didn't publish because we did everything with people's permission. But, you know, there were people who were, um, you know, who we kind of caught <laughs> caught by surprise on the, on the phone. And, uh, you know, I think it got into all of those different categories, right? The true believers, the fighters, the sort of the cultural people, the, you know, the sort of like the clueless people who tag along and find themselves, you know, enmeshed in this. I, I think it's everything. And January 6th was watching what happens when all of that kind of gathers in a critical mass. Um, and this isn't to absolve any, any participant no, no, no. at all, but just to say that I think it's, I think it's really nuanced. So, and I right. think we focus so much on this idea of like what, what do people believe, you know, it, are, is this alternate reality, um, you know, durable because they're brainwashed. And I think it's durable because it's, it, it is, there is part of a cultural identity to some people. And I think that is, is really, I think we, we underestimate Crucial. that still. So, so where does someone like Steve Bannon fit into this, this ecosystem? I mean, you have, um, you know, does, I mean, look, he's a smart guy. Um, mm -hmm. he, he, he is a, an experienced manipulator. Uh, there's a certain cynicism in the exploitation of some of these folks, you know, Alex Jones, whether he, he's an entertainer or whether he really believes this stuff. So wh where does Steve Bannon fit in right now? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, he clearly has decided he's positioning himself kind of at the head of all of this going on the air, you know, and saying that Trump is going to be restored, obviously played a significant role in what happened on January 6th. So Give me, give me your read on, on, on Bannon's role in creating this right. whole e ecosystem. I mean, he's certainly, he's, he's a sort of a PT Barnum type, right? Like he's a, he's the, the salesman, the, you know, there's sort of an architect of the chaos, I think. Um, he, I, I don't know what's in, what is within his heart. And frankly, you know, I don't think, no. I don't think it matters, but it, it does seem like his political project is embracing, you know, total, total chaos, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And and I and I think that that's that's what he sort of does. I I think what's what is really hard about him is especially when you know you're looking at at the language that they're bringing up in in the commission to you know in order to uh, hold him in contempt and and try to you know get him to to come in. He's always using that kind of war language, right? Like when it came to the Trump campaign, like he's mm -hmm. just you know he talks about reading all these you know like art of war style books. I, he speaks in this in this kind of exaggerated way that I think you know to some degree there's a <laughs> there's a a bit of a who knows what what he's saying whether or not it, that that was part of you know I am architecting a you know a run on the Capitol as part of an, <laughs> an election overturning insurrection or if that's just the kind of language he uses and it's reckless and dangerous you know. And, and it can rile people up in that way. I don't know what it is, but I think he is somebody who who employs that language because he wants that chaos. He wants, I, I think he truly believes in the destruction of the establishment. 
and then this, of course, is what drew him to Trump. And he tried to impose some of his ideas on Trump. But obviously, Trump likes that, you know, like certain elements of what Bannon is doing. So even though they they had a falling out, uh, clearly, you kind of get the sense that they're kindred spirits, at least at the moment. Or is that putting it too strongly? I, I, you know, I, I don't have any reporting on, on their current relationship, so I don't know. But I think, I mean, there's obviously a, probably the most kindred or, you know, the, the thing between them that is, that is the most similar is in absolute desire to, yeah. you know, be in the spotlight uh, <laughs> and, and to sort of, you know, yeah. be the, be the, the face of, of this kind of movement in some way. I mean, I, and, I think they're there. Bannon's, yeah. Bannon's podcast is tremendously influential in that world you know and he he grew that up out of out of nothing out of sort of you know exile and and i think it's helped him continue to be a a real ideological leader in that way or at least sort of a motivator right he's definitely stokes and fans the the flames on that so I, i i don't know if he's trying to get back in the good graces or if he's actually more powerful sort of as his own voice outside of that that world uh and being kind of tangential to trump but but i think the the one thing that they share in common is is an absolute you know uh desire to to make news (laughs) so i've been reading your stuff for years following it kind of worrying about you um but, (laughs) but, but, but but there's a specific backstory to uh this conversation today uh and so about 10 days ago uh, Brian Stelter from CNN tagged me on on Twitter. I, I had written a piece, you know, how alarmed should we be um, about you know the anti democratic actions of the GOP? Tagged me on on Twitter, and he wrote about it as well. And then you replied to uh, Brian Stelter's tweet with this post from your Galaxy Brain newsletter. By the way, Galaxy Brain that kind of raises expectations, doesn't it? I mean, aren't you? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, kind of, it's kind of hard. I mean, Galaxy Brain, really. Yeah, it, oh, it's, well, it's you know, it's it's an homage to a uh, to a meme <laughs> where it's basically like the the hottest take that you can possibly have. So I thought I thought I'd have a little that's, fun with that's that. pressure. That's a lot of pressure. So yes, okay. Sure. So so you you tagged us with with a piece that you had written back in July called "We Are Not Ready," and in that post, which I found really extraordinary, you wrote about a kind of a flashback to October 2020, a month before the election. When you were, and these are your words, seized with a deep, persistent dread that all the things you were seeing about civil conflict uh, were a prelude to something bigger. Um, so talk about that, because you were you write about this dark energy that you saw and the videos posted of furious Americans taking to the streets and militant groups on walkie talkies and surging gun and ammo sales. And you're, you're feeling that something was coming. But. Back then, before the election, you, you you didn't write it because you thought you were overly alarmist. So so tell me about looking back at that, what you were thinking then, and mm-hmm. um, what you're thinking now about that. Yeah, I, I, you know, October of 2020 was was a sort of. I guess it's not surprising in hindsight, but I was surprised at the time. I've usually been able to sort of give myself a little bit of professional remove mm-hmm. from what I cover in terms of you know my sense of. Oh, so I immersed myself in the work so as not to be, you know, as as anxious maybe as I might be. And in right. October 2020 was incredibly difficult for me um, because I felt like it was just this constant series of alarm bells. I mean, I, I think I put in the piece. There's this great article in the Atlantic about the Oath Keepers, um, mm-hmm. and it and it mentioned the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the summer of of mm-hmm. 2020, and it mentioned how 
it, it went through a couple of situations that could have been similar to that and how they were just kind of almost miraculously diffused. Um, and it, it made me realize that there's just, you know, there's so much anger out on the streets, especially at that, at that moment, there was so much, you know, not only protest, but counter protest and this sort of like, you know, it felt like this simmering rage that was about to boil over. Um, I spoke with a couple of, of, of scholars and, you know, they were basically, um, you know, predicting what they were calling, and they still are, uh, the turbulent twenties, which is that, you know, all these different indicators, economic inequality, you know, all sorts of, you know, political unrest indicators are suggesting that, you know, this will be an incredibly turbulent, if not violent decade. And, and that, that, came out around, yeah. that came out around, the, around, you know, that time, obviously you have, you know, COVID just running through the country at that time. And in this way, you know, no vaccines yet. Um, and people are just stuck inside sort of warring on their, on their keyboards. The pre the president gets COVID. There's this, you know, sort of what, what is happening with the line of succession and who's in control of, of, of the government, the elections coming, there's, you know, the GOP is already laying the groundwork for what we ended up seeing with the whole, you know, big lie. And, I felt at this moment that every every fiber, uh, you know, in my, in my in my body was kind of cr crying out and saying, I, "I feel like like things are are very untenable right now. That that there is there is so much you know potential energy for conflict in whatever way." Um, I, th I, I think a lot of us at the time were were you know wrestling with that, thinking, okay, you know, things are bad. Actually, um, if you see what I'm seeing, it's way worse than you think it is, but you don't want to say that every day. Right. So, and well, I felt you know. that, I felt that because especially, you know, the, the perch that I was working from at the time at the New York times, it's a, it's a very big platform. Uh, and you want to, you know, I, the job is to give people a proportional sense of alarm when necessary, right? And and to assuage fears when necessary. It's to try to give them a, a, an accurate perspective. And so I kept trying to write pieces, you know, and and everything. When I looked at it, I was like, "This feels alarmist to me," you know, in in that in that sense. And I, I, I you know, I didn't pull the trigger on on a couple of them because I I felt that. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I certainly don't want to be the person on the hook of saying there's not going to be a peaceful transfer of power or, yeah. or you know, whatever it is. And so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't write about it. Um, so you, and you, I, you yeah. regret that now. And, you know, if I'm reading you correctly, you also see that that failure to write it was also a window into how traditional conceptions and practices of journalism can break down in these amazing, extraordinary times. Yeah. It's, I, you know, it's a, a term that, uh, a number of people to kind of trot out um and it the term is normalcy bias right that there is yeah. in journalism often this bias toward um seeing seeing the time that you're in or seeing the event that you are in as or trying to find a reason for it to be normal right you're trying to you're, you're worried about being overly alarmist painting something as super aberrant and obviously in the scope of history you know <laughs> Uh, really crazy things happen all the time. Really intense and violent and awful things happen all the time. So it, it, that actually is kind of normal. But we get, especially in the in the sort of um, in the realm of you know covering politics and and media in this traditional world, of trying 
trying to play within the bounds of normal and see things as, oh, well, maybe it just feels a little different or maybe we're all a little bent out of shape. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, on January 6th, I'm sitting there, you know, watching everything sort of in real time on Twitter and other platforms. And the first thing that pops into my head was, I mean, of course, of course, this is where it was going. I, I knew that it was headed towards something. Um, and that's, you know, that's when I sort of realized the, you know, the, the, the sense of, among other emotions, the sense of regret in not, you know, better articulating the, the alarm that I had. But, you know, there's, there's also, I mean, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said here, but there's also the, the psychological desire to keep some sort of equilibrium, right? We know I, I asked you whether your brain had been fried by spending so much time on, 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 on social media. I also think that, I mean, one of the things that, that worries me, I'll be really honest about it, is, you know, watching in, in the media and social media and on cable television, the number of people um, who just kind of have nervous breakdowns because of this. I mean, it's just, they lose right. their minds and they come off as hysterical and waving and it's hair on fire every single day. And you really feel, hey, just, just, could you, yes, it's alarming, but you need to calm down. You, you need, you need to not lose your mind. You know what I mean here? And so I find myself Absolutely. not trying to downplay it, but also, I don't want to basically get sucked into the crazy vortex by becoming crazy myself. I kind of sense that's where you are at as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, a word that I, I think I used in the piece, but that I, I feel so much right now, a problem with media in general at this moment is trying to get a good sense of proportion, right? A proportional yeah. outrage, proportional uh, alarm, proportional... Uh, sense of calm. And, and that is, I, I feel like that is, is really one of the biggest struggles. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, we're, we get our news through channels that absolutely flatten and destroy a sense of proportionality, right? Everything is, right. is either, you know, chill out, or this is, you know, this is the thing you must worry about today in, in, you know, it's a five alarm fire for the next 24 hours and then you will never remember it happened again. Um, and so I think it, it makes it's it really world. difficult if you are plugged into that system to step back and find that sense of proportionality. Uh, and, but I think also at the same time, it, it, it really, it can, you know, I, I step back too much in that, in that moment. Hmm. Um, I think, and I didn't, I didn't write what I felt, which was that, you know, I think people should, should be on, on guard for, for some, you know, truly unthinkable event. Uh, and, and I think January 6th qualifies as one of those. So going back to October, so about roughly six months after that, you left the New York Times to join Substack and you're, you know, one of us, uh, you know, the, the small dowdy band of people who are on, on, on Substack, but, but it, it's staying with you. You use a word that I don't think I've, I've seen before. You use the term hyper object to describe issues undergirding the sprawling mm -hmm. complex problems out there. So talk to me about, but explain what, what you mean by hyper object and how it plays into what we, what we're talking about here. Yes. Uh, there's a theorist named Timothy Morton uh, who coined the term hyperobjects. And essentially what it is, is it's a concept that's so all-encompassing that it resists any specific description. Um, and, you know, a, a, the best, probably most salient example of this is climate change, right? Uh, it's such a large problem that is so 
it's so complex that when we try to describe too certain, big. certain yeah. parts about it, it yeah, it's almost hard to grasp the sense of urgency, right? And one of the best examples of this, right, is is you know, 1.5 or two degrees Celsius of warming and the way it changes the planet. I mean, that's such an such a tiny change for the human mind, you know, if you're not a scientist, if you're not sort of really well read into this stuff, you say, okay, yeah, it's a degree hotter, it's a two degrees hotter. And, you know, you don't really understand the ways in which all of these systems intertwine. And what you're talking about is, you know, sea level rise that destroys the city of Boston, right? So uh, it, it, those kinds of hyper objects are incredibly difficult especially for the press to talk about and educate people on without either over sensationalizing or underplaying it. And, and I think that that to me, when I first heard that term, probably two or three years ago, it's been lodged in my mind ever since. And I believe that right now, what makes, you know, the 21st century and especially the, the last, let's say seven, eight, 10 years. So, you know, kind of brain scrambling is the fact that I think we're confronted with a lot of hyper objects right now. Maybe. So is, is there a bandwidth of alarm that, that we just can't handle being alarmed about, you know, maybe we can handle three things to be alarmed about, but we can't handle five things. And particularly we can't be alarmed about, you know, multiple hyper objects at the same time. It's just too much. So you have to kind of go, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to be alarmed about. Um, and at some point we, people shut down. I'm not just talking about journalists, but I'm also talking about yeah. the, the the public trying to decide, you know, what I, I wrote about something yesterday about the, the, the sort of the weaponization of right wing, you know, sheriffs. And I said something mm -hmm. like, uh, you're not nearly worried enough about this. And I got some blowback saying, you know, what, what, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, we're worried about everything. Um, you know, constantly I'm reading about things I should be worried about, but I can only worry about so many things. And then I want to know what can I do about it all? Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, if you're presented with too many alarm alarming things, it exhausts the you know it exceeds the bandwidth and people shut down. That's right. I I, I encountered this pretty recently uh, with a column I wrote about the debt ceiling, and I was trying to calibrate uh, the way I framed it was calibrate my own anxiety. Right? How yeah, worried yeah, do I right. need to be about this? And somebody replied to me about this and 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 said, you know, I just think normal Americans shouldn't have to worry about this right now. <laughs> like it just, and it spoke exactly to what you're saying, right? The, the number of things, but also the, the idea of what can I do about it? You know, yes, I can call my Congress person and say, you know, I want you to, I want you to raise the, the debt ceiling or get, get rid of it because this is, you know, I, I don't mm -hmm. want the, you know, the economy to head into a, a you know, an un, unforced error of a recession. Uh, but, I think this is this is this is a real issue, and I think it's again is something that you know the the press struggles with in terms of you know you do not want to overwhelm people to the point that they tune out. Um, right. How do you how do you kind of calibrate that? And I and I think you know solutions focusing on on things where there are you know possible solutions is uh, is helpful, but you know with something like like climate change, you know individual action. It's only going to go so far. Right. Uh, 
that, but you can use journalism as a way to pressure larger institutions that are sort of more glacial to make change. So it's a really tricky balance. It, it is tricky. It's kind of the the exploding sun um, syndrome, where, where you know at some point you realize, okay, the sun will someday you know go out and. All life as we know it will be extinct, but you know what? I'm just not going to worry about that this week. I just, I, mean, I just have, I have like 86 things, including the fact that I got, you know, have to get my car fixed and you know pay my taxes and you know and my, and my kids need braces, so I'm just not going to worry about the sun going extinct or all the other things that we have to worry about. So, um, in, in your piece, you also, you know, you talk about uh, the hyper objects and how it scrambled journalist brains, and then you point out that it doesn't help matters to learn that the. Uh, Tucker Carlson was a prolific source for political reporters in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- I'd actually forgotten about that until I went back and looked at the at the notes about all of this. You know, Tucker Carlson, who continues to sort of you know turn the dial up on outrage and conspiracy theories and racism and everything. And you know, what does that say about the kind of the the media environment we live in? That apparently sitting around having drinks with D.C. reporters who use him as sources. And how bothered should we be by that? Yeah, I so <laughs> that that column uh, from my former boss uh, Ben Smith was, you know, I think is some sort of midsummer column. Kind of floated a little more under the radar than I, than I would have thought, or generated less outrage. I should I should say than I than I thought. On one hand, I understand. I covered the you know the pro Trump media for a long time. I had meetings with unsavory people, right? Uh, I, and there was actually. I wrote about this a long time ago, but um, I actually went back and reviewed in you know 2018 some of my coverage from the early part of the Trump administration and realized that I think I gave far too much of a platform to certain people, right? Let them sort of say what they wanted to say. Uh, and I, I corrected that in my own reporting. So I, I'm I'm no stranger to the idea that you have to journalism involves talking to unsavory people or people with right, you right. Know, potentially dangerous ideas. I get that. But I think what that Tucker Carlson example drove home for me is if you believe that certain pundits, Tucker included, are espousing such dangerous rhetoric and sort of, you know, influencing a segment of the population to do very dangerous, have very dangerous ideas or reckless beliefs, such as, you know, say anti-vax beliefs. If you believe that he is a node like that in the system, that he, and, and that is causing, you know, the, the foundations of our democracy to start to, you know, show some cracks, then you kind of need to treat that in your life, in your career with, that same level of of alarm, right? And, and it's this idea of with with something like a hyper object, having your actions sort of match your alarm. And, and we see this a lot with climate change, right? People are incredibly worried and anxious that, you know, we only have certain amount of years to sort of save the planet. And yet people get on airplanes every day, right? They do all sorts of things and they don't change change their their lifestyles. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a bunch of debate around, around personal responsibility there, which I won't get into, but there's, I see it as being almost analogous with the press corps, right? So if you are covering politics or covering, you know, what's going on in Washington DC to whatever way, and you are constantly talking about democratic backsliding and this idea of, you know, our democracy is in trouble, uh, then, you know, cozying up to somebody who is perpetuating that who is a major node of misinformation and 
and uh, you know whipping up unrest in that system. You, you know, you you can't just be having you know friendly drinks or friendly phone calls with that person and and using that. There has to be sort of your actions yeah. have to match your sense of worry, and I think that is where we're especially scrambled right now, both personally and as an industry. I'm, I'm really tired of the word normalize, but this is one of those cases where, you know, the problem is, is that when you, you treat Tucker Carlson as sort of just a normal guy, normal source, then you are normalizing him. The, the, the sentence that you wrote really uh, jumped out at me. You wrote, uh, the disconnect between the threat Carlson poses and the political media's shrugging proximity to him fills me with a deep dread for my industry and a very real concern that it will not be able to rise to the challenge of our moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's strong stuff. And I, and I agree. And I guess that's part of the, the scrambling is like, how do you deal with all of this? You know, how do you deal with the fact that, that the Fox news is now, uh, you know, pushing out stuff that you would have, you know, you know, I'm, you know, it feels like five minutes ago, which is an ex- obvious exaggeration. Um, you know, anyone behaving this way would have been treated like a complete pariah. They would have been mm-hmm. drummed out of polite society. And now it's treated as, well, there's just another voice in, uh, in, in our, in our dialogue. And, going to go have beer with uh with tucker hey so Char- charlie uh, i, I want to actually change gears and everything because I, I really you you write about a lot of other stuff and and i, I really feel like i'm kind of short uh, changing that you and i could talk i think for hours here and i want to make sure we get to that so can we do that right after this Thanks for listening to today's bulwark podcast and a special thank you to all of the bulwark plus members We launched Bulwark Plus a year ago, and I don't think we really had any idea back then how fast it would grow or the kind of challenges we'd all be facing in the post-Trump era. If you've been listening to us or reading our newsletters, the in-depth pieces on our homepage, you know that we are committed to telling you what we think in a thoughtful, non-tribal way. But we're also not going to pretend these are normal times, and we're not afraid to try to make a difference here at The Bulwark. And we intend to keep fighting because the challenges to democracy are more urgent than ever. None of this would be possible without your support, and we're very grateful. If you haven't signed up yet for Bulwark Plus, please consider becoming part of the Bulwark community. And if you already have, thanks. We think you're in great company. Okay, we are back with Charlie Warzel. Uh, You may know his work from uh, the New York Times, uh, from social media. He is also... Uh, the author of the newsletter Galaxy Brain, which is really quite extraordinary. You must be having fun doing that. I mean, you're, yeah, it's you, a blast. <laughs> it does feel like you're kind of liberated from some of the other stuff, and and you're and you're thinking things through. And that's what I really like about your newsletter is that you're not pushing a line. You are genuinely trying to sort things out, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it, so I'll be clear that I I loved being at the New York Times. Yeah, I yeah. loved the platform. I loved a lot of the people, the institution. I have great total respect for I wasn't canceled or anything you know wasn't trying to prove a point by going to yeah. Substack only what I saw as an opportunity at Substack was this ability to do exactly what you just said think through things sort of iteratively you know I when you put a headline up and it's on the New York Times you know front page it's often relatively declarative and it's often you have I think a responsibility to you know especially in the op-ed page to make an argument. And it's right. not that there's no arguing in at Galaxy Brain and there's no sort of, you know, uh, declarative sentences. But what I really wanted to do for at least this period of my career in this sort of trans transition moment between, you know, a, a Trump administration and a and a Biden administration and whatever's gonna, you know, come down the road, 
is really work through my own mental models of a lot of things in the world, right? Including the ones that we've just been talking about, this sense of alarm and and how do we how do we how does the media environment you know help or hurt that i i felt myself wanting to write pieces that didn't have easy you know thesis statements or things like that and this is sort of the best way i know how to do that thinking in public for other people to see so this this may seem like we're 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 changing topics here but i yesterday i was reading one of the, uh, I think it was a story in the Washington Post about how economists just cannot figure out why people are not coming back uh, to work. Mm-hmm. And this is creating a huge political problem, and it may actually be the you know the one thing that that determines the fate of of the Biden administration: the fact that you have you know even with you know dropping of the unemployment uh, benefits, et cetera, um, people are quitting their jobs at, at a massive rate. The the mm-hmm. workforce continues to be slower. People are rethinking their relationship to their jobs, to their careers, uh, working at home, going back. And this is exactly what you're working on right now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, it does feel like this is we have all these other things that we're talking about. But in terms of tectonic changes in culture, our relationship to work, it feels like something huge is going on right now. Tell me what you what you see, how, how you think about this. Yeah. Th- so the big issue right now is the, I think the, the labor statistic of quits, right? That yeah. there are more people quitting their jobs than have in, in, in quite a while. And, you know, as you mentioned with unemployment benefits, you know, ending people aren't coming back in the way that, that uh, I think both economists and politicians and managers and executives w- thought that they would. And there's, you know, a number of reasons for that, in- including the fact that, you know, a lot of people were actually able to save and are even even people sort of with lower wage jobs are kind of flush with cash right now in a way that they weren't uh, before. So they have a little bit of economic or bargaining power, so to speak, to, to wait things out. Um, and, and one of the things they're waiting out is 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 low wages. But but I think that that is almost that's something we're going to see change a little bit. But what's actually really interesting to me is 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 a is this broader trend which is uh, i described it in a past newsletter as career skepticism mm-hmm. and this is something that you're seeing a lot more in the in the millennial cohort and you know some of the the oldest of like of gen z who are just coming coming into the workforce and what you're seeing is a group of people who have watched as their parents or you know maybe grandparents have worked really, really hard and been just hit with these, you know, with these recessions that have wiped out a lot of savings and, uh, and, you know, this sort of constant rolling back of, uh, employee, employee benefits. And what they're kind of seeing is this raw deal, right? My, you know, I I watched people work really, really hard all the time, sort of put off their lives for work in order to have this small period of retirement at the end. And now that period is being pushed later and later into life. And I think you're seeing people say, well, I don't really want that for myself. Right. And so there's this kind of powerful idea that is just, you know, sort of simmering across the, this sort of generational cohort that's, that says, maybe I don't want a quote unquote career. Mm. And by career, I mean, working, you know, constantly climbing a very specific ladder to get to different 
you know, success levels in order to build just enough stability to have the last, you know, 10 years of your life to or, do the things you want or, to do. Or, or thinking of your life as your job. I mean, that's right. the, a career where you begin, what is my life? My life is my career. And then there's this personal life. There seems to be kind of an inversion there. Like, what is my real life? What do I want my life to be? Exactly. And I think, you know, as with so many things, the pandemic is is responsible for, you know, sort of shaking people out of, out of this, uh, you know, whatever slumber that, that they might have been in and, and making people realize, hey, life is short, right? It, you could go at any minute. It's unexpected. You shouldn't be, you know, deferring uh, living your life to this, you know, very specific point. Um, but I also think, too, we this is just a symptom of a very broken, especially very American work culture in which, you know, we were, we have a book coming out on this, but we, I've talked to hundreds of people in the knowledge work sector over the last two or three years. Uh, and the, the theme, the trend that runs through this is that people are so burned out and I, and it's 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 the result of corporations kind of huh. taking this short term approach right instead of the long term of hey we want to keep you retain you give you the benefits we have a long term vision for our company and where we want to be and you're a part of it for the long haul there's this very sort of quarterly profit driven you know shareholder driven idea of growth that companies and and businesses are obsessed with. And what that's doing is that's working people to the bone. They are exhausted. They are tired. So many people have made work their life. And I think that there's going to be some sort of big rewards or they'll get to the next, you know, rung on the productivity chain or their career and they can, you know, slow down, but there's no slowing down anywhere. So there, I, I think this is, this has been going on, you know, for, 20 years or so now at yeah. least um with you know especially with like the, the the internet supercharging the economy and sort of our our capitalistic ways and i i believe that this is just kind of the chickens coming home to roost here like people are just tired they've they've kind of had enough and what's well, and, they, and they also don't feel any sense of loyalty i mean they there once was a time when companies were paternalistic and they were loyal to their employees and employees were loyal to them. And that's, that's like a distant memory right now. And once employees realized that the loyalty was only supposed to go one way, it was like, well, screw that. And it's, it's, it's incredibly interesting to have gone through, I went through a lot of the history of this and there's, you know, um, from the, from the fifties, there's a wonderful book by William White called the organization yep. man. And it sort of speaks, it speaks to that, right? The organization man was a company man and these companies, you know, built such an infrastructure that some of them actually built suburbs. You yeah. know, the suburbs were were kind of created to be the sort of second uh, company, you know, area of life. Um, but there was this, you know, a lot of these people really subsumed their lives for, for their companies. And then with the, you know, the sort of precarity and, and recessions in the, in the seventies and eighties, all those people then got laid off. And yeah. then that created, that created a, a sense of kind of, Dis, disloyalty or or distrust uh, of companies that really hasn't been regained since. Yeah, you can't turn it on and off, right? I mean, yeah. you can't turn the switches on and off. Yeah, and so and so I I mean I see this as I see this as for for older workers. There's just 
burnout, right? There's just exhaustion and the pandemic obviously did not help that with people being trapped at home, you know, to uh, sort of homeschooling their kids over, over Zoom and, uh, you know, all those frustrations boiling over. But then there's the secondary part of the, you know, the, the career skepticism and this younger generation coming up and sort of seeing, seeing that, that old way and saying, well, that looks terrible. Do I really, <laughs> do I really want that? And, and, and what's so crucial about this, what get, gets lost, and I really want to be clear on it, is that in almost every situation, again, I've talked to hundreds of people about this, this, this quitting and everything, it gets very, you know, enmeshed with laziness or, you know, being entitled or spoiled or anything. People that I talk to, you know, to a person want to work. They hmm. get a sense of dignity mm -hmm. from work. They enjoy it. They, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a meaningful part of people's lives. What they don't want is to have, you know, their entire life flattened into one dimension. Mm -hmm. And that is, I am an employee of this company. I do this. Um, and so I think, I think there's actually, you know, where we kind of go in the book is there's an incredible amount of opportunity there for companies to provide, you know, provide that, that dignity, provide that paycheck, obviously, and, and give people the ability to create three-dimensional lives. And what they will get out of it is dedicated, loyal, productive, energized, creative employees. And I think that that's overlooked. Yeah, I mean, the, the term, you know, work-life balance is kind of a cliche, but the, the, it's very obvious that that there is this this shift. And, you know, I, I think Americans have mocked the French for a long time for um, valuing leisure time. Um, I'm not saying that we're going to become more like France necessarily, but 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 the, but the French clearly understood something that um, Americans are now, I think, grasping in a different way. Yeah, there's, I mean... There's some unbelievable research. Um, there's there's a great book that I would recommend everyone reading by um, the science writer Annie Murphy Paul. It's called The Extended Mind, and it it talks about how basically we we think of our we talk about our brains as if they're computers, right? Well, our brains aren't computers. Our brains are actually very different. A computer can do the same task anywhere at any time. And it, you know, it, it's, it's distinctively not human. Uh, the human mind works so much differently and, and actually depends on the environment. And, and where I'm going with this is, is she and all these, all this science basically concludes that, you know, a lot of the things that we do to be more productive, that we sort of venerate and, you know, grit and determination and sitting at the keyboard and banging your head against the wall until it comes out. It's actually the opposite of how our brains <laughs> want to function. And taking time away, sort of, you know, rest, relaxation, disconnection um, is actually incredibly generative create creatively and, and for problem solving and things like that. And our work culture doesn't allow for that a lot of the times. So what it does is it just, it really does kind of grind people down and burn them out. And there's actually so much productivity, creativity that's being left on the table because hmm. of that. Charlie Warzel, this has been a fascinating discussion. I hope we can do it again um, because I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.